what makes you groan? Why do you groan? Deacon and I read a story to Oswin yesterday about a boy with too many toys. And there was this part in the, in the story where the dad steps on Legos on the floor with bare feet. And he groans. If you've stepped on Legos in bare feet, you know that groan. What makes you groan? I woke up groaning about my three children who aren't, weren't in my home last night. Uh, Judson's in California with a friend, my two college-age kids. And I often wake up on Sunday morning wondering, like, glad I haven't received a text message of trouble or help. But there was this ache that I felt and experienced at, like, wondering. Like, I hope they're okay. What makes you groan? When you're sick? When you receive bad news? Like one way I groan is the word ug. It's a family word for us. It's whenever we receive bad news or suffering or hard things, the first word out of our mouths is ug. It's a text message that you will receive from me when you share with me bad news or needs of prayer. It's ug because we groan. Why? Because groaning, according to my buddy Matt, and lots of this sermon comes from a sermon he preached, Matt and my friend Jim and Sinclair Ferguson today, but why do we groan? Because groaning is the most articulate response to suffering. When I was, uh, a few years ago, I was sitting in Chick-fil-A. I had gone to the hospital to visit um, Arlen and Elizabeth and their new baby, Isabella. And there were stuff I knew were happening, complications. I wasn't sure to the level of severity, but I, I went and grabbed lunch uh, waiting to uh, see them and the baby. And Arlen calls me and says to me, hey, dude, you, you got to get over here quick. And luckily, I was just right there. And so I literally ran uh, the few hundred yards to the hospital, and was quickly, it was like uh, the Red Sea parted. They, the Beersgreens had told them that I was there and was coming, and everybody kind of grabbed me and ushered me quickly into this room. And I held that little baby, little Isabella, and that room was this weird mixture of singing, praying, crying, and groaning. And it was probably the most holy place I've ever been. Groaning is the way we prepare ourselves for the new world. And it's good. And it's a Christian practice. In fact, what we've been talking about in Romans 8 is how do we walk in this realm of the spirit while living in the realm of the flesh? While we live in a realm where there is suffering and death and the unknown, where we're tempted in these, this realm of the flesh to deal with these very hard things by patting down a path in our flesh. Like, what do we do in the face of realities and suffering and death? Now, some of you might like choose to vitamin up, to exercise up, to do something to somehow try to control this thing 
that is coming. Death is the train. It is the long black train, and it's coming for all of us. And in the face of that, that's the reality of living in the realm of the Spirit, and in the face of that, we are all tempted to try to somehow abate it, control it, somehow curb it, make it more accessible, easier to swallow, to deal with it. But that's padding down a path in the realm of the flesh with the flesh, not with the spirit. Now, there's nothing wrong with protein shakes and working out. But it's the attitude sown in the self that the self must somehow deal with, control with, pat down this path to walk through it. Groaning, according to our text today, is a way to pat down a trail in the spirit. A way for us to all walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And what I want you to see this morning is that heaven, the new world that is to come, the true, is the true context of all of our suffering. Like you and I are going to suffer in this life. Why? Because John Newton today, I don't know why he's popular, but he is. But John Newton says, I don't think we would desire heaven if we didn't experience much suffering on earth. There is this mystical connection between suffering and glory. So Paul says in verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And we might hear that in the midst of all of our suffering go, that's just not true. How could that be true? The suffering here is so real, so tangible. And yet there is this mystical connection in the Bible between our sufferings and the glory that is to come. Paul is not being Pollyanna when he says this in verse 18. He's going to lay this out, this connection between suffering and glory. Now, intuitively, I think you know this. Like, I did a kitchen remodel, and there was a lot of groaning. If you've done one, you know this. If you've done any kind of work to perfect a craft... To create something that matters, to create art, something beautiful, it is always created through suffering. If you have a baby, many of you do in this room, the path to that child is through suffering. And it is this weird mix of suffering and glory, suffering and ecstasy. And yet there's so much suffering. Right, it's not only global, it's also a temporal. Like, it's not just something in the now, it's something that's always been. And when we go through it, we ask, why are we going through this? Why war? Why natural disaster? Why accidents? Last night, drove by Academy two different times in Tramway, two different accidents. One, a, a pedestrian we think was killed, another, a motorcyclist wrecked into a car. Why? Why the societal dysfunction and the systematic oppression and so many shootings and sick kids and miscarriages? Why? Things are not the way they are supposed to be. And when all of this hits us, what does it sound like? Oh, groaning, hugging. When that reality of this world, this life, hits us, we groan. And the good news, at least in part this morning, 
is that the scriptures are telling us and you, don't stop. Don't stop. It is the secret to your future. And the creation and God join in with you to groan in this new world. Three points this morning. First, the groan of creation, the groan of humanity, and the groan of the Spirit. The first groan of creation, verses 19 to 22, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. In George MacDonald's book, The Hope of the Gospel, he notes poet Henry Vaughan's Latin rendition of this the, uh, verse 19. It can be translated, For the things created, watching with head thrust out, await the revelation of the sons of God. In this poem that Vaughn writes, it says, Sometimes I sit with thee and tarry an hour or so, then vary. Thy other creatures in this scene, thee only aim and mean. Some risk, some rise to seek thee, and with heads erect peep from their beds. Others whose birth is in the tomb and cannot quite quit the womb, sigh there and groan for thee their liberty. That Greek word, watching with head stretched forward alertly, to watch with head outstretched, to attract attention to anything in wait, waitful suspense. And so J.B. Phillips translates this verse in question, the whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. So why are they stretching their heads? Why are they craning their necks and standing on tiptoes to see. They are standing on tiptoes to see men and women, boys and girls, conform to the image of Jesus, coming in glory, to see consummation, to see us becoming who we are, fit for eternity. Right now, we don't quite fit. We're like boys and girls playing dress up in our parents' clothes. Have that image. That's us. And the creation is waiting for us to grow into our clothes. Here's how Sinclair Ferguson says, says it. To be a son and to be the image and likeness of your father are synonymous ideas. To put it another way, if we wish to understand what man was intended to be, we need to think of him as a son of God. If, in turn, we ask what it means to be a son of God, the answer must be found in terms of being in God's image and God's likeness. Imagine, if you can, God from eternity past predestined the elect to be sons and daughters, stamped with God's image and likeness, redeemed through Christ's death for our sins, to one day be completed, once again, to perfection and relationship with their holy God as his sons and daughters. This is what the world is standing on tiptoe and groaning for. It's been groaning since the fall. Genesis 3 says creation was subjected to futility and decay. Why? 
because of sin. Men and women cursed, and consequently cursed with men and women was the whole of creation. And so the creation groans to see us restored because it will mean for the creation that it too will be restored. It was cursed through us, and it will be restored through us. This is why creation stands on tiptoes and groans, like children waiting for Christmas. Now? Is it now? Is it now? The earth itself is waiting to be born again, released from its curse to the things as they were intended. And yet until then, there's bondage and there's decay. Uh, a few years ago, uh, my pastor's group, we've gone every other year to San Diego. And one of the days we went up to La Jolla. And if you've ever been to La Jolla, it's, you know, the cove. It's beautiful, gorgeous. And of course, out there's all these sea otters and seals. And it's beautiful. Like it's this gorgeous, idyllic scene. And I mean, who doesn't love baby seals, right? I mean, look at that little baby seal. So beautiful and cute, and a baby seal with its mama. There's kissing. And don't at me if these are sea lions. I don't know. Can't tell the difference. But it's beautiful. The, the creation is this mix of beauty, and yet we're walking on the beach, and we're seeing all of this stuff that you're looking at, and we're seeing the, the scene, and then we walk down the beach, and then we see... Or we, well, we see this from above. You, you can't really tell, but there's two baby seals there and a mama seal. And you think, oh, that's so cute. And then you get down, and then you smell it. And you realize that the mama seal is dead. This is a picture of creation in bondage, yet and decay and futility, and yet weirdly surrounded by beauty. This week, there's been good things, and yet there's been beauty, there's been futility and decay. There's this been this combination of grief and ecstasy, life and death. The Christian life lives itself out in the middle of this tension, these polarities. We stand in the middle of these things, baby seals and dead mama seals, and we stand in the middle of it, and what do we do? We groan. Like when you discover that this world is choke full of disappointment and at the same time has this potential for all this beauty and wonder. I want you to avoid the three D's here in the midst of this tension. The first D is despair. Like this person looks at that mama seal and says, well, we're all going to end up just like that mama seal. There's no hope in all the darkness. It's the cynic. It's everything is a bad news end and story. That is our temptation to stand in the middle of this, by the way is to stand here instead of groaning in the groaning of creation as we see all of it unfolded before us, the temptation is to despair. There is a lot for us to despair right now in this current moment. 
There's a lot of ways for us to go dark, a lot of ways for us to focus and stay glued in to no hope in the midst of waiting for there to be something different. That's what despair does. The second is demand. You see the baby seal and say, "Mm, man, let's go get a drink, bro. I can't like deal with this. I have needs and they need to be satisfied. And you find some kind of hope in the flesh. Some of you might demand that your anxieties be relieved. So you see dead baby uh, seal mamas and you want to relieve that anxiety in some way. You might do it through endless talking, grumbling and griping to God or to anyone else when your demands aren't met. But the temptation to stand in the middle of the beauty and the decay is to demand something different. The third is denial. Do you see the seal and you say circle of life or let's forget it, let's keep it positive. I, it's the Leslie Nope kind of way of dealing with the harshness of the world to find something good, something beautiful in it all, untouched, however, by suffering. You deny the realities of the fall, the futilities of this life. These are alternative paths for us to cut, to pat down, to walk upon. It's a way of living life in the flesh, to despair, demand, or deny. But the alternative is to groan. To groan that things aren't as they should be. To groan that creation has been subjected to futility. To groan the, the, the harsh realities of this life. That creation's design was glorious, but now it's cursed and incomplete. Creation is doing that. It's groaning, and we see it everywhere. And this leads to point two, our groans. To groan as humanity, verses 23 through 25. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Notice the connection Paul makes here between hope and groaning. Now, hope is that hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes and what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We groan. Faith is this. Even though we experience uh, hungers that are unsatisfied for, for life to work, our unquenched thirst for a deep relationship with others or with God, when God seems far off, we trust anyway that God is still there for us, that he's good to us, that he loves us, that he is God and we are not, that he is sovereign and in control. This is what I want you to see in the perfectionists of grace, that God is so good, that his love is so true. And how it comes to us prior, superabundant, incongruent, efficacious, So setting your mind on this, even when you can't see it, and trusting that this is true when you can't see it, this is the life of faith and hope. And that is why we groan. We we don't hide our needs from God. We, We groan them out. What's internal? That might be things that you're churning inside to the Lord through prayer. It might be ways that you express them to God. We groan. We don't demand relief. We groan out waiting for his rest. It looks like prayer. It looks like lament. It looks like honesty before God. It looks like an ugh out of nowhere, centered 
on cursing what is cursable and longing for what God brings to rectify the world versus cursing it and seeking relief in some other idol to deal with the cursable. Like that's the real rub for us. Like we, we see the cursable things, the way the world and creation is groaning, instead of us joining with the song and groaning with creation, we choose to run for relief to something else that will help us not to have to groan. Instead of cursing what's cursable, some of you just need to learn how to cuss at what's cursable and call it what it is in the hope of what will be remade and groan it out. So we are led through Romans 8 to much groaning. The groaning is merely your spiritual stomach growling. We are hungry without a guarantee of being fed completely in this life. So we groan like the earth itself is groaning. And when we do, something deep is occurring. Paul describes it like childbirth. It produces, in the end, life. And so the route to that life is the death practiced through groaning. And Paul says the pain is worth it, in other words. My wife groaned, and then the medicine came, and then the baby, and life was at the end of the route. Groaning looks like that. It looks like childbirth, that waiting and hoping. It doesn't look like someone taking action and getting things done. Now hear this, because we are people of means and privilege And when we experience suffering, our first step is to do something, to fix it, to get something done. But Paul calls us to wait and to hope. And if we don't wait and hope, we may just ruin our resurrection. Some of you uh, have adopted in this room or know people who have adopted And that whole process, right, what it's like to know that there's a child that you have been paired with or family that's about to have a child, or maybe it's even a foreign adoption where you've been, you made even visits to visit this child. And this whole process, it's a long process. It doesn't usually just happen overnight. It's rare that someone just says, shows up on your doorstep and says, hey, I'm having a baby tomorrow. I want you to adopt it or they leave it at your doorstep. That's rare. It happens, but it's rare. This process is a process of waiting and hoping that one day this child will be yours. And when you have it, there's this period of bonding. Now they call it, I don't know if you've heard this term, it's called cocooning. What happens here, a lot happens here, but really not much happens here. Like, it's this process where the, the child will see themselves as yours, and you will see the child as yours, and it will confirm the identity. That's what is supposed to happen in cocooning. But what's actually going on is not a whole lot. You're, you're not doing much. You're just bonding, holding, sitting there, looking, waiting. And then the child confirms their identity And it's as glorifying as a butterfly coming out of a cocoon. This is the waiting and the hoping. 
that God is inviting you to as you groan. Groaning is God cocooning you for new creation to be fully his son and daughter. Making something new in you and out of you. Groaning is the sound of our embryotic phase in utero, waiting and hoping. And you add another sound to that. Prayer is you talking to eternity, acknowledging that you are made for another world that is not made for bondage and decay. This is why in how you pat a path in the Spirit, you pray. You look up at your daddy God and say, Father, daddy, help me. That is the path of walking in the Spirit. It is the way we are to groan. Our groans are directed to our Father who can and will eventually do something about it. And we are all like children waiting and hoping for our God to do it. And we join creation who's waiting and hoping for us to be made into the sons and daughters of God that we are. Blakely was a big baby. She was over nine pounds, and a week before her due date, we went in to get an ultrasound, and she was breech. And there was concerns that she was way too big to turn, and there was not enough space for her. And so the doc, you know, came in and did some pushing, some maneuvering, and we did some praying. My buddy Matt and his wife Sarah had a breech baby a week before their due date as well. And their doctor told them to go home and play loud music and told Matt to sing at the base of Sarah's stomach. And the thought was is that the baby would hear, Ambrose would hear, and she would turn the right way to the voice and to the music. So Matt sang, Ambrose, come on out, Ambrose. And I remember doing this with my children all the way through, singing to them. And I'm sure to them it sounded like mumbled words. Isn't that sometimes how it is for us with God? Like God's voice sounds distant and mumbled. Like in the afflictions of life with all the sickness and loss and death, why is it taking so long for anything to happen right now? Why are people aren't working? Why are my Christmas presents not going to be here on time? Why is everything so expensive? Why can't I trust people closest to me? Why all this betrayal? Why all these threats and all this uncertainty? In the midst of this, it feels like God is mumbling. And here Paul calls us to curiously lean in. And what God is singing to us is there will be no more death no more sickness, no more loss, no more tears. He's singing to us, there will only be fulfillment, work that works, no more weapons, no more locks on doors, no more darkness. And the Spirit is singing us into a better world. Turn around. It's time. These groans are the key to getting into heaven. Don't let hope die. There's glory to come. And when this is hard for us to believe, this is when the Spirit does his work. The last groan is the groan of the Spirit, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings 
too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit himself prays with us and for us at the same time, in and through our own prayers, in this mysterious mix of grace. Carefully think about what the Scripture says here. God helps us in our weakness in prayer by praying for us himself. The divine dance of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, in prayer, taking place every time one of God's people prays. This is stunning. We have two great intercessors, two great prayer warriors as God's children. Christ is our intercessor in the court of heaven, and the Spirit is our intercessor in the theater of our own hearts. And God has thought out everything, and we couldn't be more loved or cared for, even as we're groaning under the weight of our afflictions. The Spirit translates our confused half-hearted, barely holding on prayers into clear, concise, precise prayers that accord with God's will. It's amazing. And yet there's more. The Spirit's prayers are no half-hearted prayers. Paul says he prays with inexpressible groans, wordless groanings, groanings that don't simply translate. The idea behind groaning is show the intensity of the Spirit's prayer for us. We've seen this word groan three times in this chapter. The creation groans. And then in verse 23, it says, we groan, waiting our adoption. And now we read, God groans too, and the Spirit groans for us in prayer. God fully identifying with us in the person of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus' Spirit. He identifies so closely with us that he groans along with us. When he, we hurt, he hurts, and he is pained when we are pained, and he is consolidated with us. Nothing but the Christian gospel even approximate news like this. Religions of the world throughout history tell us God is distant, different, and far off, but our God, although he is different than us, is infinitely more powerful and holy than us, is so near to us. He is Emmanuel, God with us, and the Spirit is our comforter, advocate, and guide, especially in our groanings and prayers. And so when suffering comes to your heart, church, pour out your hurt to God. God hears you and sighs with you. God is helping you in your weaknesses. Sinclair Ferguson tells a story about when he was eight, he would go visit his family in northern Scotland. And his mom had a cousin, and she married uh, this cousin, and he was the love of her life. Well, her husband got this illness in his early 20s, and the illness made him uh, an invalid. He couldn't walk and was in a wheelchair, and he also couldn't talk. He was a mute. And so often this man would moan. He would need something. He would groan out, oh, oh. And Sinclair said he was young. He was about eight, and it just scared him. He was terrified whenever the groans came. But once he got over the terrors and the strangeness, he says he began to see that when the groans came, so came his mom's cousin. She would just appear from somewhere else in the house. There would be this moan, And there she was. And she had this mystical gift of interpretation, he said. 
She knew what each and every groan meant. And she would give him what he wanted and needed. Ferguson says this is what Paul means. This is the ministry of the Spirit in your life. When you don't know what to say, especially in the face of suffering, the Spirit interprets what you do not know what to say back to God. And he is so pleased with you. Ferguson will say, the day you and I stop groaning in this world is the day you and I have grieved the Holy Spirit. The Spirit knows what you need. So this is why we groan. And our groans meet up with the Spirit who joins our song and groans with us to God. And there is our Father completing our adoption as sons and daughters, fitting us for the world that is to come. So don't stop groaning. Don't stop groaning. The older I get, the more I find myself not knowing what to say and being okay with it. As a younger man, I didn't know what to say, and I often would fill the space with words. But now, it means praying more and saying less. And the Spirit is helping me, and consequently you, as you groan for heaven, helping you to be born into a new world. So groan, church. Groan. Groaning is the way you are made fit for eternity. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would uh, help us. Like even now, like we don't, we don't know. We don't know how to pray as we ought. And yet we long for the mind of Christ to see our sufferings in its proper perspective. To see that these things are light and momentary. They are not our forever story. And yet we can't see it. We're, we're blinded by our circumstances so often. And so I pray, God, that you would help us to groan as we wait, to groan so that we might hope, to groan so that we would be made fit for eternity. Help us to not want to wipe away our groaning to somehow satisfy our need for groaning somewhere else so we don't have to groan and we miss out on the way that you intend to fit us for eternity. This is no small task, we know. And so we groan and pray that you would make it so in us. Make it so in me. I trifle with small things to distract myself instead of being made fit for you. Help us, God. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen.